Welcome to Rise and Rouse, a podcast for people who give a damn. Please continue to share the podcast with your friends. We're seeing more and more people tuning in each week, and it gives me such joy. This is your host, Erin Allgood, social impact strategist, consultant, and trader to whiteness. This week on Rise and Rouse, you'll hear my conversation with Mazarine Trays, a fellow nonprofit consultant and friend. She's an effectiveness coach who specializes in human design. For anyone unfamiliar, human design is a method of self-knowledge and reflection. Mazarine describes this work more in the episode. For the last five years, she's consulted for nonprofits and governments in the U.S. and Canada, helping executives, leaders, and small teams operate more effectively by knowing their unique designs. We talk about what it means to move through the world in a more embodied way, how white supremacy culture shows up in the nonprofit sector, and how to shift away from those practices and norms. This is a full, candid, energetic conversation that is chock full of amazing resources so you can keep learning. Azarine, thank you so much for being here with me today on the Rise and Rouse podcast. I am just so grateful to have you here. I am so excited for this conversation, and I love you so much, and obviously just so honored to have you as a guest, too. So let me just give folks a little intro to who you are, um, and then I'm going to hand it over to you to expound a little bit on on everything. Mazarine Trays is an effectiveness coach who specializes in human design. She helps leaders with teams become more effective through human design in the gene keys. For the last five years, she's consulted for nonprofits and governments in the U.S. and Canada, helping executives, leaders, and small teams operate more effectively by knowing their unique designs. Um, and I'm just going to pause there. I know you've got more to the bio, but I'm going to hand it over to you to just share a little bit more about who you are. But we we originally met through a, an organization called Nonprofitist for nonprofit co- consultants. And that has been, it was just such a like rich and wonderful um, and fortuitous, serendipitous meeting of, of the both of us. Um, but I will pause there because I can keep going and let you actually talk. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, um, thanks. So yeah, for the last like 13 years, I've been doing my business and it's been about fundraising consulting and leadership consulting for the nonprofit sector. And I love doing it. And in recent years, I've realized that human design and the gene keys actually really do help us uh, in personality typing ways um, allow us to understand how we can truly be of greatest service to the world. And I really find that work so fulfilling. So people want to learn more about that, then go to humandesignreadings.net, check it out get your mybodygraph.com, go see your design and be like, cool, I want to learn more. And then we can hang out and talk about that. So I'm so excited about that. I love I love the way that you bring all of the different pieces together in this like you make connections in ways that I like blows my mind, honestly. Like when we whenever we have a conversation, I'm like, oh, I just love how our conversation spiderweb and and I get to understand the connections between human design and how do we how do we create a more equitable, beautiful world that we want to step into and all all those and everything in between. So just so fantastic. So tell me some of the cool shit you're working on right now. I'd love to just hear what's what's alive in your world. Yeah, like um, so uh, since 2020, lots of things have changed. Um, and I think our sector in that time has really started to undergo a crisis of ethics around what we're based on, which is white supremacy and acknowledging that and coming to terms with that. And then what comes next? Like, how do we do better as a sector, as in 
do better for our world. So with the George Floyd protests and with, you know, the climate crisis and with all these things that are pretty, pretty depressing and scary. I love that so many of us are rising to the occasion and like saying, okay, what do I do now? And so to that end, what's really alive for me right now is I'm working on my conference, which is going to be over by the time this airs, but um, it's called a path to action. And it's basically with the people who wrote collecting courage book, Everyone should check it out, collectingcourage.org. There is a playlist as well as a book. It's all about um, Black, Canadian, and American fundraisers talking about their experience in the nonprofit sector. And uh, they said, people love this book, but what's next? Oh, you (laughs) took one DEI workshop. You want to have a path to action. This is our workbook, a path to action. So it's coming out this month. We're doing a conference around it. And then I'm collaborating with them. So what's really alive for me is to not be a leader, but to be a collaborator. Um, and I feel like that's one of the ways that I want to deprogram myself as I do this other deprogramming work for people. So it's inner work, outer work at the same time. Mm, I love that so much. I know I looked at the lineup for the conference and it's fantastic. And it's going to be just such a great resource for folks, um, which we'll make sure it gets into the show notes. So let's talk a little bit, too, just about this idea of like how our personal individual work starts to connect to collective liberation, because these are things that I've heard you and I have both talked about quite a bit. And I'm so excited to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Sure. I am not an expert at all in collective liberation. I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know what I'm doing. I majored in poetry and gender studies in school, and that was 20 years ago. So when it comes to... uh, I, I don't know how to answer your question. Um, we will have a session at the conference with Denisha Thompson that's going to be talking about walking the path to collective liberation. We'll have another session with Rachel Wiley talking about sort of the creativity, inherent in equity work, because we've never lived in a world with true equity. So we're going to have to be artists to like imagine that world together. Um, so like, I, I think people should probably read like bell hooks and stuff. I think where I wanted to like what I was really interested in when I was starting to formulate that question was just this idea of, you know, we talked about betraying whiteness and like how betraying whiteness, I think, connects to just creating a better world, you know, in so many different ways. And like, how do we do that individually? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So for people that are feeling activated by that language, stay with us. Stay with us right now. Um, so you can't see me, but I identify as like a white person with a French German extraction, whatever. For me, like uh I talked with my friend Anika about being a traitor to whiteness, and she's like, You need to make that the panel at the conference. And I was like, Yes, so we're gonna have that at the conference too. Um, but we're gonna have different folks talk about it. For me, it really means questioning what white supremacy has taught us is normal for us to do. And there's a whole list of like white supremacy behaviors that you'll probably see every day at your nonprofit or in your business or wherever you are in government. And, you know, they're laid out in Tima and Okun's uh, dismantlingracism.org list. So everything from individualism to urgency to uh, either or thinking, black and white thinking. There's so many of them. To, there's a lot of fear that goes with it as well. And only one right way to do things, worship of the written word. And so for the last couple of years, I've been chatting with people about like, okay, so there's ways you can do things differently on a structural level, in a, you know, day-to-day level, and then kind of like just interrupting oppression when you see it. So um, 
the way you do things is just as important as what you're doing. And so earlier this year, I organized a conference that had very much a lot of like urgency and I had collaborators that I was like, uh, okay, right. Like there's a lot of urgency here. There's a lot of fear here. I don't like how this feels. Right. And with this current conference I'm doing, it feels more like, oh, we're just being more chill with this. We're not having urgency culture. We're not doing individualistic stuff. We're just being really, really like open and hopefully more emotionally aware. Um, and that for me is being a traitor to whiteness. It's, uh, it's, it's saying, I don't have to be in charge as a white person. It's saying, I don't have all the answers. Uh, it's saying um, a lot of the fears that I have were implanted in me through white supremacy, through my own family, just teaching me what they knew. So like, if you've ever been um, afraid of getting too fat or afraid of being poor, what you may not realize is that, you know, there's this little gremlin in the back of your mind, which is implanted by white supremacy. It's like, if you read the book, uh, oh God, but what's it, what's, what's their name? I can't remember it now. It's going to come to me in a second. Um, but it's, it's called uh, Belly of the Beast. And in that book, uh, Deshaun Harrison talks about how, um, I have a blog post about this, we can link it. Um, uh, a lot of what white people are afraid of is becoming a poor black woman, basically. And so a lot of the fears, you know, you can see that directly relate to that, you know? So, um, so when we get defensive or when we get, you know, worried, right, about becoming that, we're taking on a mask that we can also take off. I want people to understand that when it comes to becoming a traitor to whiteness, just because you have white skin, that means nothing, right? You could have brown skin and be like deeply embedded in whiteness. So um, there is a podcast I did with Dr. Deborah Jenkins, who is uh, the former head of the sociology department at Clark College. And so she talked about like the six steps of like um, racial awareness at the end of that interview, which I highly recommend people look at because it kind of helps, I would say black and brown people um, sort of like deprogram from whiteness as well. So you can link that in the show notes too. Absolutely, yeah. I think that that's, you know, for just personally, you know, I think we're all on this journey too of of that, you know, being a traitor to whiteness, undoing kind of like the ways in which we're just starting to like become more aware of this culture that we like inhabit and live in and swim in, you know, and and how our so much many of our behaviors are just are linked directly to that. So it's like it takes a lot to actually start to go through that process of letting go of or it's not even letting go, but like understanding our identities as white folks. You know what I mean? Taking the mask off. Yeah, exactly. And so I um one that I'll just pick up on just as you were talking about it that I will say myself is particularly challenging is that urgency part of things. Oh my goodness, that has been one of the hardest things for me to break down, you know, because it's just our, especially as a consultant, as somebody who's working with clients all the time, as somebody who, I mean, you and I are both probably, I would say, like highly productive <laughs> people too. And so like try, and for me, like urgency, productivity, kind of like getting things done. I, you know, I will always try to like get more, like try to cram more into a day. And that leads to the urgency that leads to that. So that intentional slowing down of things is where I have started to understand and see and to undo a lot of that conditioning that I've had. So I don't know. Is there? Yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah. And I mean, and it's time for this. It's past time for this. Right. Like, and we've seen this in our nonprofits, like, oh yeah, you had urgency about this issue. Like, for the last 10 years and it's still here you know maybe breaking down your body isn't serving you maybe like you know trying to make people work like robots isn't serving you and so what's behind that is is white supremacy slavery right uh so there's uh, two books that i would recommend to your listeners one's called laziness does not exist by dr devin price and i have a blog post about resisting work um there's another one called resisting work by peter fleming um which is great and there's another one um, by Sarah Jackie called Work Won't Love You Back. So there's so many good books that have come out recently about how this urgency culture makes us treat ourselves like robots and how it's going to break us down, even if we can be productive in the system. Like Devin Price was super productive in the system and then his body broke down. You know, to go back to your sense of urgency piece, um, there is a podcast called uh, the Emergent Strategy Podcast with Dr. Uh, Adrian Marie Brown. Maybe she's not a doctor. I forget. Anyway, the point is they have uh, several episodes called Slow Down Your Slow Down. And I really encourage people to listen to those episodes because uh, when we allow ourselves to just have that space to breathe, it changes so much. It changes how you interact with other people and it helps you not um, unthinkingly replicate these systems of oppression that we just don't know anything else. And so I want to just tell people who are listening, depersonalize you falling into this trap. It's, it's all around you. It's not a surprise you fell in this trap. It's not even personal when you do it. It's completely acting on a system that you have no control over. But now that you're becoming more aware of your behavior, you can change how you respond to it. Hmm. That's the biggest thing is I think people think that they have to do things perfectly. You know what I mean? They get this awareness and then all of a sudden they have to do things perfectly. Um, and that's, I think, comes with any kind of when you're starting to you know, step into and understand racial justice. Perfectionism is another aspect of white supremacy. So I was in 2020. I was like, what do I do? I feel so frozen and stuck and I don't want to fuck up, but I want to address this. George Floyd protests. I want to address the Breonna Taylor murder. And like my friend Kishana was like, just do it, Mazarine. Don't wait for perfection. Like I screw up all the time. And I was like, oh, okay. So I'm still learning all of this and you're not going to get it right the first or even the 10th time you do it. But the point is that you're moving in a direction. And I asked my collaborators as well. Like if I fuck up, just tell me. Like, I don't want to, like, have you sit here and say, think, oh, I can't tell her that she's, like, fucking up right now and be and, and replicating urgency culture in this meeting, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Right. And it's, I, you know, having those kinds of trusting relationships with people, too. And even if it's not trusted, like, just trusting that it is okay to fuck up, you know, on from time to time. One of the other guests on this in this season is Audrey Holst, who is a perfectionism coach. I think it's, she works with perfectionists and like really helps them to from, she helps them from a understanding the neuro, like the neurological kind of ways in which, in the physical ways in which perfectionism shows up in our body and how do we start to count counteract that through embodiment, which I think is one of those things that's just, you know, as we're kind of talking about this too, like that idea of like starting to become more embodied is another key to doing this kind of work in the world, right? Like, mm-hmm. and that goes along with like slowing down and like under and being able to be in tune with your body versus kind of staying so busy, staying like staying in that urgency and in that kind of like rinse, repeat kind of cycle. 
And that's like, for me, that's like one of the hardest also things to do too. Like embodiment for me, it looks like painting. It looks like going for a walk, being in the woods. It means meditating. You know, there's, you know, so many different ways and dancing and things like that. There's that it shows up, but it's also, I think we're, we're all, I mean, I even did this yesterday where I spent a whole bunch of time just sitting there being like, I can't pick up my my paintbrush because I have to do X, Y, Z before I do that. And then I woke up this morning with like a pain in my back and a pain in my, you know, like it's the physical, like the delaying of that kind of moving and like it, the delaying of the the signals that my body, like addressing the signals that my body was creating was like, it's showing up then, of course, like as pain in my in my body. So in what ways are you, like, do you find, are you able to, one, just kind of like are counteracting that whiteness in your world? Two, like, how are how do you move through the world in an embodied way? Because you're probably one of those people I think of the most when I think of somebody who is like truly embodying themselves in this world. That's so kind of you. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take that in and, and say thank you for seeing me. Um, so when I do these conferences, we create embodiment rituals in the beginning of the day. Uh, in this conference, uh, we're going to have a sound bath, a live harp sound bath in the beginning of the day. We're going to have one of our speakers sing a Nina Simone song. We're going to give people a chance to pause and reconnect with their bodies because talking about being a traitor to whiteness can bring up some shit for people. And, you know, it can be activating. And so as I'm getting older, I'm learning like, hey, if you help people's bodies feel safe, they're going to be a lot more interested in staying with you instead of disassociating or checking out. Um, And especially online where everyone is so sick of being now for like two and a half years. Um, It's even more important to have embodiment practices. So uh, I try to get outside every day. Uh, I try to go to the gym uh, with my mask on, of course. I try to um, fully express myself in lovemaking, which is very, very fun. Uh, I also have fun by myself. Um, But more than that, I like to just do a little dance around the kitchen when I'm cooking and, you know, sing. I love singing. It really stimulates the vagus nerve. It makes you feel like more calm. Your breathing changes. I meditate, you know, sometimes. Um, But I also like want to remind people that if something starts to feel like a chore, you don't have to keep doing it. You don't have to treat yourself like a robot. Yeah, I like to bike, uh, but I don't do that as much as I used to. Um, (laughs) uh, So like just breathing together. Could we just take a pause for a second and just take a deep breath in together and a deep breath out? Because I think this is like the perfect moment to do it. What do you say? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So I'm going to lift up my arms because it helps me. So I'm going to lift up my arms and breathe in deep. I'm going to breathe out. Maybe one more time. Deep breath in. And out. Thank you for letting me have the space and time with you to do that. Um, I feel like I have a tendency to data dump in interviews and I want people to just be like, wow, that's a lot of information. Okay. You disconnect right now. I get that. But if you can just 
pause the podcast, take a deep breath, come back with us. We're still going to talk about some cool shit. So. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, yeah. um, it, it is so hard to, well, I, I mean, it's certainly you as you're saying a data dump, you know, for sure. But like, I also want to name how important it is that you talk about the lineage of the thinking because a lot of, I mean, let's talk about like how concepts can get co-opted by people in so many ways and not actually go back to like talking about where that, where that thought originated, you know what I mean? And, and in so many ways it gets, it can get <laughs> that thinking that oftentimes is originating from black feminist authors, you know what I mean? gets whitewashed in some way or repurposed. I've seen it used so many times for like capitalistic purposes. And I'm like, uh, no, <laughs> like, no, that's not what that's for. It's not, This is not for you to like try to be like, oh, here's like this strong black woman. I'm going to take her words and then go try to sell something. Like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I think yeah. you've seen that and before too. And that's a too. fear. I mean, that's a fear yeah. when I do these conferences. I'm like, I don't want to just like pay people a pittance and keep most of the money. Um, so we're, you know, we're splitting the money equally in this conference, which makes me feel really good. But also, I mean, if people want to go back even further, check out Bell Hooks' The Will to Change book because she talks about dominance culture. And dominance culture is something that um, nonprofits absolutely take part in. I mean, have you ever really stopped to think about how our workplaces are generally oligarchies? Like, let's talk about power. You know, and Bell Hooks is very, very good at this. And she's like, look, uh, <laughs> way before the girl boss came along, right? She's like, what if we don't have to aspire to dominance? And what does it look like if we live in a world where that's not the norm? So that's something I'd ask you to question. Like, why is it that you don't have control over where, when, and how you work necessarily? Or why is it that the board has all of the power and none of the responsibility and the staff have none of the power and all of the responsibility? And how can we disconnect from dominance culture and have different modes of um, uh, structure and organizations that are more equitably distributing power? Like uh, Shivanti Daniel said at my conference in, in March, uh, you know, she's from institute.coop, check that shit out. How do we have more democratic workplace structures for like co-ops and nonprofits? And then also I had uh, Sean, I'm sorry, Sean Good speak and Daniel Perez speak on, um, he's part of the nonprofit employees union. And that's getting huge grounds in the U.S. right now. So, mm. yeah, so there's ways to like, there's people that are already doing this work. So don't feel like you have to recreate the wheel. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I um, I had a conversation with a with a board last week about how, you know, just talking about like how the organization is maturing, you know, in a way and like and the board is used to kind of being more hands-on in things and they're kind of transitioning the board to more of a governance structure or uh, sorry more of a governing board um, and less hands-on and one of the things I had pointed out to folks was that in order because of course they have an equity statement you know a lot of organizations have equity statements that are literally there just on paper some organizations really live into it for sure too at the same time Um, and, and there's everyone in between but this in particular, this I was trying to make this ex- this explicitly that in order to really fully embody an, an equity statement as an organization, that the board had to be comfortable sharing power with the staff and starting to like understand how to shift the power 
to the staff. And oh boy, that did not go well. <laughs> very, very angry at me <laughs> for saying that. Um, and there was, I mean, it was just a few board members. I don't know. I didn't get a pulse on all of the board members. But basically, you know, we're in a strategic planning process. They wanted to start back at, at we're, we're at the pr- point where I'm starting to write the plan. And they wanted to go back to square one and and literally like relitigate everything that had already been done by a strategic planning committee. Yeah, I mean, you know, hearing that story, it sounds like people got activated in their bodies. And going back to embodiment, you know, if you were in the room with them, even in Zoom, be like, what's happening inside you right now? And most likely defensiveness comes from you know, they're not understanding how they're replicating systems of oppression or taking it personally that you said we're replicating systems of oppression. And that's hard. That's hard to get past. I hear your I hear your frustration in that. And it's hard sometimes, too, to like just pause folks and to be like, hey, I need you to like, you know, think about why you're getting defensive, (laughs) you know, and it's, you know, I'm a good facilitator. You're an amazing facilitator. Like, it's hard in those moments still to kind of to come up against it and to then be able to figure out how you move forward in a way that that then doesn't derail a conversation. Even though I'm practiced at it, it's hard. It's so, so hard still. Well, you don't have to hold yourself to perfectionist standards either. And next year, I'm actually going to try even harder to not activate people by having different names for my conferences and call it nonprofit futures instead of the party at the end of the patriarchy. You know, mm-hmm. like... And just make it a little bit more innocuous sounding um, to get people to come. Um, you know, to your point, like, you know, people in that room that maybe are not at the same point on this path as you are. And it's okay if you don't reach everybody because you're planting seeds. Yep. I love that. I love planting seeds. And I can see in so in almost every single you know, organization I work with, I do that too. I mean, how about you? Where are you planting seeds? Where have you seen those seeds planted? And maybe then be been able to look back and be like, ooh, I planted that seed. Look at that tree that's grown out of that now. Uh, you know, um, it's really hard because I'm not tied to any one organization. So I get to do these speaking gigs and get to these conferences. And then unless people tell me afterwards, this is what happened to me, I never know. I never know really what comes of it. I'll say that it feels like over the last 13 years as I've been doing this work and and learning and growing myself, that my ability to hold space has shifted. My ability to slow down, my slowdown has shifted. I'm becoming more aware of these systems of oppression myself, and therefore I can teach people about it. And, you know, I got paid to do a keynote last year on post-capitalist futures, which I don't think would have happened 13 years ago. So I see this in you know, I'm hopefully not co-opting movement language, hopefully, but I see this in in how we're spending our money. And and you said it yourself, sometimes equity statements are just statements, but some people want to do more. And to that, I say, look at your budget. Mm. Where are you allocating money for continuing education, mentorship, reparations? Uh, and that includes the land that you're on um, and the Native people that own that land and are you paying them rent Mm -hmm. some people are you know so i was talking with a guy who was working at bard college and he was like a admissions coordinator and he's like i'm gonna go out to like these tribes in like midwest and we're gonna get some people to come to bard and i said 
have you gotten into right relationship with the tribal land that you're currently on? And he said, oh, no, that's a big problem, actually. We haven't done that. Mm -hmm. And I said, I would be surprised if these other tribes would listen to you then. Right. Maybe maybe your school with a billion dollar endowment could spare some money to the tribes that actually own this land. Yep. That caretake this land. So I think I think a budget is a value statement and I encourage everyone listening to look at your budget and say, Hey, we say we believe this stuff. Let's let's see if we can do a little better next year. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm helping organizations right now in our strategic planning processes to to like where do we like let's put our money where our mouth is for sure. Like let's actually live these values through the budget. And it's um it looks different for every organization, for sure. Um, certainly the where they are kind of on this continuum of kind of like understanding the social justice and like where they actually fit into that and how what's their lean and all of that. But yeah, it's definitely one of those things like it if organizations don't know how to do it, <laughs> like there are people like me who can help, but like and people like you who can help them like kind of really understand some of these things too. But but yeah, like it can't be overlooked that like we don't do like an equity statement can't be a standalone thing for an organization. It actually has to per like it. You have to like really make sure that equity, like those principles, actually permeate every single aspect of the organization, both internally and externally, in the work that they do. And right, and if you do the internal work, right, internal work inside yourself, then you're going to feel a lot less defensive about the need for this work. Um, and that's why we made the Path to Action Conference because. It's helping you do the inner work and the outer work at the same time. And it never ends. I mean, that's another thing we're going to talk about in our panel about being a traitor to whiteness. This work never ends. It's There's always more layers to unpeel. And as long as you're not stuck in perfectionism, which is another aspect of white supremacy, you're going to be fine. I mean, let's face it. You and I are not responsible for colonialism, but we do benefit from it. Mm -hmm. You know, so acknowledging that, acknowledging that doesn't have to make us bad guys. Right. Right. Acknowledging it and then using the knowledge that we have and the privilege that we have to be not just allies, but accomplices, too. That's that's one of the things I think you were probably originally the person who had said that to me. And I was like, oh, yeah, damn, that's right. It's not that I'm just going to go like allyship can be so performative. Being an accomplice is like, yep, <laughs> I'm right here alongside you, like causing trouble. You know what I mean? Causing good trouble. Well, thanks for having me on your podcast. I hope that we're moving the Overton window a little further to the left for everybody who's listening and you can look up with the Overton window. <laughs> <is>. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, we'll we can link to that too. Um, <laughs> one more thing that I want to like just touch on before I guess we wrap. Like it's just, you know, we so one of the things we've talked about before is this idea of like despair is a luxury we can't afford right now. So kind of thinking back to, you know, you what you were saying earlier around like 2020 and how your work has shifted so much over those couple of those last couple of years. And right now it's very, you know, we're still living with COVID. We're still living. Um, I mean, we never stopped living through um, this kind of racial reckoning, but the recession that we have, like we're, we're getting hit on all fronts. How are you finding hope amidst all of the bullshit that's being thrown at us right now? I look to the leadership of Trisha Hersey and the NAP ministry. And if you want to look up the NAP ministry on Instagram or get her book, Rest is Resistance, 
Um, she had some wonderful tweets several years ago um, that I really I would love to put in the show notes as well because they are they are so powerful. But she rested and she took naps every day when she was very, very poor. And she said, this culture cannot have me. This culture cannot make me make me crazy over its constant performing, you know, urgency and despair. I encourage people to disconnect from the things that make you feel urgency and despair. Um, at least once a day, turning off your phone or something with your computer and just going on a walk, um, if, you, if that is available to you, um, or painting, as you said, Erin, which we share that passion, love to paint, love to paint with absolutely no purpose. So uh, we have learned through, you know, um, various exposés that the Facebook Twitter, whatever, Instagram algorithms, the more, and, and, and also um, other websites, right? Uh, the more um, disturbing news that we read, the longer we're going to stay on the website. And so they have an impetus to tell us about every little terrible thing that happens. And so knowing that, now that you know that, that you're being manipulated, I encourage you to check out reasonstobecheerful.world, which is run by David Byrne. And it helps you see there's a lot of good stuff going on in the world, too. Maybe your nonprofit could be featured there for all the good work that you're doing. It's something to think about if you're a fundraiser or a PR person for a nonprofit um, or a leader, right? But the ways that I find hope are that we have a groundswell of momentum that is undeniable. Like, we thought this was going to be a red wave in this last election, and it turned into a blue one. Not for everyone, but we got new members of the squad. Um, for us in Oregon, we got the first openly lesbian governor. Um, we have like, you know, as a queer person, that's like so fun for me to like see that representation and know that that's happening. But that's not gonna solve all our problems. You know, that's just a little tiny piece of it. So I'd say that we've got a long way to go and movements take 10 years and when we're feeling activated with the trauma of COVID in the last two and a half years, let alone all the other grief we need to feel about how this country treats people of color, you know, the, the carceral state, like there's so many things. We had open fascism on the streets here. Like I was afraid to go out. Like, and then we have all these smoke from all these fires. Like we couldn't go outside for, for weeks. Um, like every summer now that's the norm. Um, so I say that to say bad shit is always going to be happening. I turn towards art. I turn directly towards the things that feed me, um, even if I can't go outside, even if uh, there's a lot of things to be sad about, because I will think of Trisha Hershey again, this culture cannot have me. They want to take away my joy and they can't. And that's actually one of the uh, chapters in the Collecting Courage book. It's joy. And it's so beautiful. And I actually have a quote from Anika Allen about joy and um in love so nelson mandela said may your choices reflect your hopes not your fears and um nina simone said you've got to learn to leave the table when love's no longer being served and you know <laughs> there's so much we could say about love there's so much i want to say about love um but uh 
I encourage everyone who's listening to get the Collecting Courage book. It's on Amazon. I know don't support Amazon, but if you have to do it with this book, um, it's so, so good. Um, and I think it'll be a real eye opener for people with white skin who haven't necessarily had a lot of relationships with people of color in their lives um, over the years that oh, this is how our sector could do better. And it's not about pointing a finger. This book, I read it in one sitting and made me cry. It made me laugh. It gave me goosebumps. Like, it's a great book. It has poetry, has, has a soundtrack. It's a good book. I've been listening to the soundtrack um, and I like, I love it so very, very much. Um, You'll find new people to love on there, you mm-hmm. know? New artists. I love that. I love that kind of the way in which, um, especially like music for me, is that I kind of go down the rabbit hole and it becomes this kind of evolution. Like, and you kind of been like, oh, I love that person. Oh, okay. And then, and I think of it as being such a collective experience. Um, literally sharing playlists i just i love the ripple effects that happen when that happens let's link that playlist in the show yeah. notes then. oh absolutely yeah um azarine thank you so much for being here is there anything else like that you want to talk about before we wrap up so um this book called virtue hoarders by Catherine Liu is something i'd encourage any nonprofit person or board member however you identify listening to read. And the reason I say this, um, she was on the Upstream podcast. I mean, a lot of what I'm saying comes from the podcast that I listen to. Um, and I'm trying to like name check all of them, but I, I'm not going to get all of them. The reason that I recommend the book Virtue Hoarders, the subtitle is The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class. I've written a blog post about this, but also you should just buy its book. It's very tiny. Right now, um, we have like the discipline of hope, which is really important, but also Um, We need to be looking at how do I make my habits into virtues that maybe I don't need to be so obsessed with proving that I'm better than other people. And if you start doing that, some of this equity work will be a lot easier for you because then it's okay for you to make mistakes. There's less perfectionism. That's just one of the many things that this book has taught me. And you can also check out my blog post about it. But there's a lot of like, there's a lot of things in here about how we're brainwashed by Puritanism um and and so much more i mean there's so many good pieces i don't i don't i'll just say that you know sometimes when we enter the nonprofit sector we think oh everything i do is good and actually we may be just perpetuating these systems of oppression and not even realizing it and this book will help us start to understand how we might do that Mm, i love that thank you for thank you for sharing that I will say like one of the ways in which I have seen that show up I because uh, I had started my career doing food systems consulting work and have now shifted to doing just broader social change work. But for so many food organizations, that is like a big, big question for them is I don't know if it's a big question for them, but it's one of the things that they start to when they start to go down that rabbit hole of like, oh, yeah, we help people access healthy food okay, well, what does healthy food mean? And that becomes a huge rabbit hole to go down to be like, okay, but like cake is healthy. You know what I mean? Because it fills your soul up. Like we can't sit here and say like, what is what is nourishing versus not nourishing? Because it is so, you know, it depends on culture. It depends on people's, yeah, just their background, their upbringing, the, what they actually can even access in that moment, their dietary, you know, restrictions. It, it's you can't make a blanket statement about what healthy is. 
especially when it comes to food and things like that. And I see a lot of organizations kind of make that start to grapple with that when they're like, oh, wait, we don't want to be virtue hoarders, <laughs> but we also need to create parameters around what it, what is it that we actually do? What do we give like to people? What are we, you know, what is the mission, the lane that they're in and how do they start to define those things? And so I love that you share that because it's obviously such a, the virtue hoarders, the book is just such a, is such a great resource. It's also just such an important concept for us all to kind of think about like where in which are we trying to like hoard that ourselves? Where are the organizations that we work with for like trying to hoard that? And how do we start to disrupt that as another means of starting to disrupt that white supremacy culture that we all swim, breathe, live in? Um, yeah, exactly. I love that you brought it back to the structural analysis because again, this is not saying, oh, you're a nonprofit leader and you're doing it wrong. No, we're not trying to shame anyone here. Shame is not useful. Instead, what we're trying to do is say, hey, you have this mask on that, and it's come from white supremacy, that because by virtue of being a white person, you know everything or you should know everything. It's not okay for you to make mistakes and you have to be in charge. So I hope that people who read this book and who read dismantlingracism.org can start to say to themselves, how can I step back from power hoarding? How can I have less power? And how can I share power in a way that, like you were trying to do in your strategic planning meeting, respects the dignity of everyone here? And there's blueprints for this. You don't have to do this alone. Again, the individualism inherent in white supremacy, you can ask the people around you and you can also look to co-ops and how they're run. There's so many other ways you can crack this nut. Just because we've always done it in this oligarchic way does not mean that you have to keep running yourself ragged as an executive director trying to control everything. Control is such bullshit anyway. <laughs> it's so it's dominance ways. culture. It's it not totally even personal. Is. It's dominance culture. Mm -hmm. It totally is. And I find whenever in my own personal like life, when I start to control things, it, like when I'm like starting to get stressed, I try to control things more. It's, it's all about like trying to fix or like assuage my anxiety around things. And it's just like, fuck, I fell down that rabbit hole again. No, no, no. <laughs> but right. it's like, but the, the awareness. Fear. Yeah. That's the fear in white supremacy, right? Like we're so in it. We don't even realize that we're in fear. Right. So finding self-soothing techniques for yourself is imperative in the coming time. For me, I just use a tapping point for EFT. I just tap my, sh my collarbone and it really, really grounds me and soothes me. But for you, maybe it's like, you know, feeling your feet on the ground or taking a walk or going to acupuncture or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. We've come so full circle because now we're like, okay, well, here's how we embody and how do we, how do we live in our body and like use that as a means of grounding ourselves and my goodness. Yes. I could talk to you forever. That's pretty much how I feel about things. <laughs> I would tell people, watch this space. Um, next year's conferences are going to be epic. You want to be there. Um, go to masterintrace.com, sign up for a newsletter. I will let you know multiple times about what's going on. Um, we are still figuring out the lineup, but we are going to be a model of collaborative leadership. And um, if you want to see how to do the work, come. I'm, um, and I'll also say that all of Mazarine's emails 
or, or very a lot of them come with like really funny memes and things like that and cartoons. So it's like worth it to get on her newsletter. I mean, obviously for to know about all these amazing conferences that are coming up, but also just to be able to get those like super fun, sometimes snarky, sometimes whatever, but they're always insightful and always give me a chuckle. Like I love I love that you share those things. So Oh yeah, I have so many. <laughs> I will hook you up. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, thank you so much for being here. I am just so grateful to you. I love you so much. And I'm just so excited to like be able to put this in the world. And I am so honored that you joined me today. And, you know, as I was getting this whole podcast thing started, you're like, yes, absolutely. I will be there. And that made me feel so good. And just I'm so having your vote of confidence in the work that I do means the world to me. Thank you to Mazarin Trays for joining me in conversation today. If you want to learn more about her work, you can check out MazarinTrays.com, connect with her on LinkedIn, or follow her on Twitter. She's also offering a 15-minute free human design reading to all of our listeners so that you can learn about your design and find the gift in your shadow. Check the show notes for links. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a five-star reading and review to help us reach more people. Make sure to follow Rise and Rouse wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss your chance to hear from someone who gives a damn. Follow us on Instagram at Rise and Rouse and sign up for my newsletter by going to allgoodstrategies.com. Rise and Rouse is created and hosted by me, Aaron Allgood, is produced and edited by Steph George of Stefania Audio. Production support from Grace Cleary Morin and Yana Krasanova. Our theme music is written and produced by Chris Marion. 